Welcome to the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. I'm Stephen McGregor. This is episode 32, Leading Through Crisis with Hilton Stephen Cassidy. So a short introduction on this episode. Um, I went through a short catch-up on what's going on here in Barcelona in the last episode, number 31, um, and just getting straight to it with the interview with Steve that I've just finished today, uh, Thursday the 24th of September. The plan is to get this out on the 30th, uh, and that will be three fantastic interviews with Matt Wilson at Uber, Melissa Delarimple at McKinsey, and Hilton Stephen Cassidy within the past week. I'm really happy with these three as a theme of travel for Q3 on the podcast in this very interesting year. Um, Another interesting thing with Steve, you know, we're, we're from neighbouring towns in Scotland. I'm from Motherwell, he's from Wisha, but of course we've both spent uh, a long amount of time away from our hometowns, but we've got a lot of people that we know in, in common. The conversation with Steve, you know, we looked at three different areas, the health and well-being of staff at Hilton and also Steve himself as a very in a very demanding time as a, as a leader of that organisation. Uh, looking also at the innovations, some of the innovations, and also the way of working that produced those innovations during the last few months. Uh, and of course, just the whole aspect of, of leading through crisis in a sector that arguably, you know, uh, airlines notwithstanding, has been the most badly affected with the current crisis. Um, you know, a lot of the, 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 the reflections on innovations that has uh, made me think on the way of working and actually very similar to the interview with Melissa in episode 31 in terms of more empowerment, more collaboration, uh, more rapid cycles of testing and iterating, which is often more enjoyable uh, and, and improves the experience of work, um, which is actually some of the concepts that we talked about in, in a previous episode on Agile Ways of Working with Jeff Got Health um, about 18 months ago. So if we think about the negative effects of the crisis in terms of people's health and well-being, then I think that is possibly one of the things, just that more positive notion of work that could mitigate those negative effects going forward and certainly in post-pandemic world. And I think the other thing that contributes to people's health and well-being perhaps is, is a bigger meaning of work. Um, you know, recognising that the type of work that, that you are doing within your organisation does contribute to the societal good. And this is common also to the interview with Matt in terms of the number of free rides that Uber gave to NHS workers in the UK. And as you'll see in this interview with Steve, some fantastic stories when the hotels were closed to all guests, then they were given over to the doctors and the nurses and the people who were really on the front line of the crisis and, and having such a difficult daily working life, but finding that safe haven within the Hilton hotels in the evening. So some really great points coming out in this interview with Steve. Um, again, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you in Q4. I have no idea what the theme is going to be. Um, maybe take a couple of weeks off after this kind of busy week with these three interviews and get on to um, some paying work with the lab. Um, but I'm looking forward to coming back in Q4. So as ever, until then, keep well, keep safe. Bye for now. Ciao.
Hi, Steve. Great to talk to you today on the Chief Wellbeing Officer podcast. Are you working from home at the moment? I am today. Uh, I've managed to get out a bit more recently, but today I'm working from home. Yes, Stephen. Good to speak to you as well. Hopefully that's going smoothly. So, you know, we're looking at travel on the podcast this quarter, and I've already had some great conversations this week with Matt at Uber and Melissa at McKinsey. You know, with the possible exception of airlines, though, the hotel sector has probably been hit the hardest of all. How bad did it get for you? Uh, it was a, a tough period. Um, I, I can't sweeten it in any any other way. Uh, from the start in March, when the government instructed us to close all of our hotels as part of their response to the coronavirus crisis, uh, through to July when we started to reopen, we saw a period there where 100% of our hotels in the UK and Ireland were closed um, and some 95% of our workforce were placed on furlough. Uh, so that was uh, an incredibly difficult and, of course, unprecedented uh, period for our industry. Uh, and since then, uh, although the hotels are starting to reopen, this continued to be a huge number of restrictions on travel, most notably their quarantine requirements of travellers coming into the UK. So uh, business is building uh, and we're confident that it will continue to do so. As we, uh, as we get a bit more used to the crisis and particularly some of the policies around them start to become uh, more uh, appropriate to travel, but uh, it's still tough going at the moment, Steve. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to look at the kind of positive side of that in terms of the, you know, the, the such level of negative impacts. Um, but there has been things that have happened um, in terms of, you know, introducing new features to the to the guest experience and things. And, and you know, we'll, we'll get to that during the interview. But mm. talking about yourself, first of all, and your own leadership style, you know, at the beginning of the crisis in March, one of the most widely reported examples was from the hotel sector. It was from the Marriott CEO, Arne Sorensen. Can you tell me a little bit about how you navigated yourself as a leader during that, those kind of dark early days and weeks in, in March? Well, the, the early days of the crisis prompted a very different style of leadership to those that were being adopted only days and weeks prior to the closure of hotels and the restrictions coming in place as a consequence of the crisis. Um, certainly our business had been on a very positive trajectory, improving occupancies and revenues and incomes. And we had a very, very strong pipeline of new hotel openings. And then literally overnight, one had to pivot into a very different uh, uh, style of, of leadership. Um, and when faced with a crisis like this, an unprecedented crisis with an unknown set of circumstances, uh, it was very key that as a leader that one was honest and candid about the situation that we faced as a business. Uh, one aspect of the honesty is that we didn't have all the answers. Uh, we certainly didn't have clarity as to how long um, the issue would be with us. Uh, and so it was important to be uh, upfront and honest um, with our team members about that situation. And to recognize also that these were difficult times. I mean, this wasn't uh, 
a pure economic challenge. There were uh, there was impact on families of team members and team members themselves. Um, it was an incredibly emotional period, and I think uh, as a leader, it was important to show and demonstrate that empathy and 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 the strength of feeling uh, around the crisis and the emotional aspects of it at that point in time. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think as a leader, that was drawing upon uh, features and aspects of leadership that certainly we hadn't been uh, used to uh, in, in near times. But I think above all else throughout this, and particularly at the start, is despite the kind of known unknowns and uh, unknown knowns, uh, as somebody once said, it was critically important to remain hopeful uh, and optimistic. And um, we remain that way. We will get through this. Um, and in fact, we'll probably go on to talk about this later in the interview, Stephen, but um, we will have learned a huge amount from this crisis. Uh, yeah. And we must ensure that we take that forward with us. Absolutely. No, some great points there, Steve. Um, and even thinking about some of the work that, that we've done with clients this year in terms of resilience and a lot of the research and resilience, and even thinking about examples like the Stockdale paradox, it's about being very honest with people, painting you know, giving them the, the, the facts and often the kind of very brutal truth of the situation. Mm. But at the same time, being optimistic that there will be this future time when we get beyond that and, and, and things will be better again. So that's very interesting that came through in your comments. And I think the empathy thing as well, and I, you know, from, you know, I've known you for several years and I can imagine that a lot of your leadership style, let's say, is, is very tactile and that you enjoy meeting people and you know, inspiring them face to face, which is is a very empathetic way of leadership. But it's interesting how the the pandemic has forced a lot of us to try and be more empathetic at distance. Let's say, right? Yes. So we've got these kind of video calls, and in a way, empathy is still developing because maybe you see the the pressures that people have at home that you weren't you know aware of in the past. You're seeing the whole person. You're seeing the the pressures of family life and and the dog barking at the same time as meeting a deadline and all that kind of thing, right? So I can see that maybe some of that element was there for you as well. How, you know, how did you deal with that, just being at home and just having to do your leadership, let's say, via Zoom? How, how tough was that? Yeah, I mean, work, working from home and uh, moving from conference calls that you know, were predominantly over the telephone to ones that were exclusively on video. Uh, I mean, the biggest change was actually working out how to do it, Stephen, to be honest with you, without the support around you in the office. But uh, we've all become masters at video technology, haven't we? Through yeah. But uh, yeah, the initial changes were, were challenging. Uh, but, but looking back on them, actually, quite funny some of them I mean you know in the early days when my seven-year-old son would run in behind me as I was chairing a meeting of 100 general managers in the UK and all he cares about is where is his football or his bicycle <laughs> initially was uh, was was probably a source of much embarrassment but actually you know back to this point around uh, kind of authenticity I think uh, I think it was uh, it, it was a kind of icebreaker with the teams, and I, I did notice increasingly children turning up on conference calls, and that was okay, yeah, um, because that was real, 
Um, that was the environments in which people were operating. So, yeah, we got used to it, and I think we're working well with it now. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here as we start to get into recovery phase and hopefully at some point soon we get back to kind of normality as far as the, the, the virus is concerned. But it'll be interesting to see how much video conferencing um, is, becomes the norm within business going forward. Yeah. Looking personally at the period so far post-pandemic, um, you know, keeping a sense of humour is, is important, which I think is coming through in your, in your comments as well. But how tiring was it for you and stressful? So I'm just curious as to your own personal health and well-being the past several months. How have you kept an eye on that? Um, I've realised it's really important to keep an eye on that because in the early stages, I got it completely wrong, uh, Stephen, and I think many people would admit to that. Um, the temptation is to arrive at your desk first thing in the morning and just... Uh, you know, go on a, a kind of constant um, roll of meetings through to the end of the day without taking the right amount of rest. Uh, recuperation of the brain cells, um, not eating properly, not getting the right balance of, of uh, exercise. Uh, but again, that was something that very swiftly um, I personally adapted to. And it was something that I was at pains to encourage my team to get uh, to get the right balance um, and much of that is about having the uh, kind of confidence to say uh, no to the demands on your time and giving your team members confidence to do that likewise regardless of where in the hierarchy that uh, that, that kind of demand on your time is coming from so uh, yeah I mean in summary at the early days of adapting to this kind of home working uh, environment. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, I think many of us got it wrong, but I think hopefully uh, now I've got a good balance and uh, that's serving me better as a, as a leader and as a business person. I think my decisions are probably better as a consequence and I think my leadership style is improved accordingly. Good to know. You know, I think, as you say, it's giving the team permission um, and maybe not to feel guilty about working from home and, and enjoy the good things of, of being at home, right? You know, if there's no yeah. commute in the morning, maybe mm -hmm. there's an opportunity there for a little bit more sleep um, mm -hmm. and, and to go for a walk outside and, you know, take a break and enjoy it. You know, I, I think in, especially in the early days of the crisis, the, a lot of people were doing, you know, working much longer days, right? Just because yeah. they felt that they were, they kind of had to do it in a way as if they felt guilty for, for being at home. So it's good to know that, that you got that balance personally and then that's fed through to your team as well. Yeah. Looking, looking at, um, you know, frontline health workers, right? They got a lot of attention um, and concern during the crisis and, and, and quite rightly so. But what about the frontline workers in the travel sector? I just had a feeling that, you know, with travel and, and people in uh, that are working in Hilton across the UK and Ireland, it was such a tough time. Um, as you mentioned previously, furlough system was in place in the UK. Um, at least there's some sort of um, safety net, but any reflections or comments on the health and well-being of the wider Hilton organisation during this time and, and anything that's been put in place? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, there's probably two kind of groupings of uh, frontline team workers in this context. I mean, 
there's the team members that uh, continue to work in the hotels and serve guests. And in the early stages, that was predominantly key workers that were, and in most cases, health workers that were mm. right really at the cold face of this crisis. So, you know, in the early days before, uh, when, when we were still learning about this virus and still learning um, the protocols and procedures, uh, you know, as a as a, as a world uh, at, at, that would stop transmission um, of the virus or reduce transmission of the virus, uh, we had we we went over the top with ensuring the kind of physical environment was as re- comfortable and reassuring to our team members as as we could possibly make it. So detailed procedures developed to ensure team member safety, like um, social distancing, signage and protective equipment, which has become the norm now and in fact has become law in many countries to have in place, were being put into our hotels at the very early stages to protect our team members and guests. Um, you know, providing additional training and communication forums to provide that reassurance to team members that their safety would not be compromised um, and was as important to them as it was to guests. Uh, You know, in terms of kind of mental uh, welfare, you know, the stress and anxiety was clearly peaked during this period of time. You had team members that perhaps had been out of the business for a while, had left the business pre uh, or at the start of the crisis, and we're coming back into this hugely uncertain environment. Um, so, you know, ensuring that there was regular communication with those team members, whether they're on the floor, um, huddles with managers in a socially distanced way, of course, or uh, again, using video technology to get the right level of expertise to talk to team members uh, should they have particular needs or questions. Um, but also, I mean, it was really important to create a confidential channel for our team members so that they could um, voice any concerns that they would have, what they had in a, in, in a confidential way to somebody that they could be assured would not uh, judge or there'd be consequences in their minds of doing so. So that was, that was a, a, a kind of set of packages to answer your question there, Steve. Yeah, no, that's good to know. And even on that last point on, I guess the value of intimacy and, and confidentiality and, and building trust at this time where, you know, anxiety is, is going through the roof. And even your first example there of, you know, providing, let's say, a, a safe haven for, for health workers, right? You know, and, and, and similar to some of the work that, that Uber did as well that came out in the interview that I did with Matt Wilson earlier this week in providing free rides for the NHS. Yeah. Um, I understand that a lot of the health workers and the doctors and nurses were, were staying in the hotels when no one else could. Have you any stories there you, you can share about um, some of these health workers that were staying in the hotels and, and some of the results or impact of that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, probably th- th- this kind of, uh, this theme has probably been one of the most memorable parts of this crisis so far. Um, I remember in the very early days, Stephen, I mean, you know, as a consequence of my title, uh, I was easy to find on Google and get get in touch, uh, uh, to get in touch with me. And um, I received a lot of emails from 
mainly GP practices uh, of, of individual uh, doctors uh, who were working uh, in accident and emergency across hospitals in the UK, asking if we were able to support with accommodation, which of course we, we did uh, on many occasions. But then shortly, within a few days, and within a few days, we were starting to receive inquiries from the government as to whether we could house on mass uh, key healthcare workers that were working in extraordinarily difficult um, uh, and emotional environments. So we were thankfully able to do that a number a number of our properties. Um, and actually, only a couple of days ago, I was at one of those properties, which is our largest hotel in London, which is right next to one of the um, one of the biggest hospitals in London. Uh, and they were accommodating up to 300 National Health Service workers every single night. Um, and for many of those workers, that became their home for weeks. Um, and we had the privilege of looking after those key workers. And when I was at the hotel the other day, I walked down the main corridor and passed what was a kind of collage of pictures that had been put together and what the, the team members in the hotel had called. And these pictures had been uh, done by uh, the family and children of the key workers that were working in the hotel. Um, and it was incredibly inspiring, to say the least. Um, and for our team members to know that they've been part of that is equally rewarding uh, for them. And, you know, one other story I'll mention on that, I'm kind of going on a bit on this, but it really was quite an impactful experience, is, you know, I was talking to one of the team members whose um, first language is Spanish, and she was telling me that uh, there was a lady that was working uh, in the intensive care unit at this hospital uh, who was also Spanish. And she came in one night and... She burst into tears. She'd had a, a terrible day uh, in the ICU. Um, and she was desperate to speak to somebody that in her, in her mother language. Um, and this team member sat down with the worker and they just talked. And, you know, this is the kind of spirit of hospitality kind of coming to life. But um, it was uh, two people talking in their mother tongue in a foreign country the middle of an unprecedented crisis. And as I said, Stephen, we've been absolutely privileged uh, to look after some of these team members. And I'm incredibly proud of my team uh, for everything they've done to support that. No, there's some, some great stories, Steve. Thanks for sharing. Um, you know, there's been a lot of commentary on what the working world will look like um, as we emerge from this crisis. And a lot of the talk has been about you know, finding more meaning at work and, and you know, uh, getting greater levels of engagement and lo loyalty. And, and when people are, are, that work in a company see that the, the impact of their jobs goes beyond them and they make a real contribution to society at large, then that's incredibly energizing and inspiring. And I think, you know, for you, I, I'm sure, and for your team and, and the wider organization, just being involved in providing that service must have been tremendously energizing for them and, and help with any of the, the negative effects in terms of their health or mental well-being that they've suffered, you know, so that, that's fantastic yeah. to hear. 
For sure. Looking at um, some of the things that you guys have done during the last few months, and, and you mentioned the word pivot yourself just a few minutes ago. Mm. Um, you know, Uber talked about similar things that they had been pivoting during the crisis, and and with the, the McKinsey interview, we looked at how uh, they're looking at how the travel experience might be reinvented with things like contactless experience and things like that. What have been some of the main things that you guys have introduced in the last few months? Um, yeah, was it necessity is the mother of invention? Is that the quote? So <laughs> it's given us COVID. The COVID crisis has given us a platform to innovate and develop new ways of working and new and uh, you know new products for our, our customers and and to accelerate initiatives that were underway already so you meant you mentioned uh, contactless there i mean how, how have we used the technology to overcome some of the the, the, the challenges around uh, personal contact and so use of cash for example or credit cards etc so we have a digital key uh, capability on the hilton honors app and and that can be widely used in hotels to to avoid picking up keys uh, and going straight to room to avoid touching parts of the building as you progress through uh, is one good example that obviously is this has given us the opportunity to accelerate um I think uh, the other the other area that's been quite interesting is the whole food and beverage proposition. I mean, clearly everybody that's staying in our hotels uh, is expecting to to have a breakfast, lunch, or dinner option. Um, our ability to deliver that was somewhat constrained by some of the challenges that we faced around the the, uh, the virus. Uh, but we've developed, and it's still in place, and it will continue to be in place going forward. You know, new room service offering allow us to um, allows customers to, to either grab and go um, their their, uh, their their food from from reception without having to have contact with any team members, um, or a kind of knock and drop drop best breakfast service where uh, breakfast is taken to the room and um, and handed over the door without uh, again any contact between individuals. Uh, the kind of modern traveler is looking for some of these processes to be much more kind of quick and efficient. These are the kind of products that will stay with us uh, for some time to come. So there are many, many examples during this period, Stephen. Yeah. No, that's interesting when you say that in many ways, a lot of these things might have been in the pipeline and, and under consideration. And with other sectors as well, what the crisis has done is accelerated a lot of these ideas and, and it's been a massive social experiment worldwide in, in so many areas and, and as you also say these aren't just stopgap measures that are around for a, a pandemic world but they'll you know the real value adding innovations that will stick around yeah, when we get beyond the crisis right um yeah. in, in terms of the process um you know do you tend to experiment do you pilot in one or two hotels and see if it works and then then scale up or any any comments on 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 the process there yeah i would say you, you've described how we would uh, apply innovation and change in a normal environment and that that's still the same through the crisis but that whole process is contracted significantly 
you know, we are more likely to put something in place as a live trial, observe it, make some tweaks, um, and then roll out rapidly now rather than necessarily uh, look at, you know, prolonged pilots um, over periods of time because we've had to, we haven't had time on our side in many cases to apply some of these changes. So that kind of test and learn or test and iterate environment has become much swifter, mm. um, if that answers your question. Yeah, and that actually leads me to thinking that, you know, in many ways, you know, the biggest legacy isn't just the things that you're implementing, but how you're doing it, right? So the way of working and those those much quicker cycles, you know, that's probably going to be the bigger legacy of, of the crisis. In terms of you know, that way of working and just being much faster, much more responsive, you know, maybe listening more intently to, to the user or just digging into that user experience. How has the organization dealt with that change? Is that being, you know, an easy change to make? Has it been more enjoyable, the type of work? Any any reflections on that in terms of the change in the way of working? Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, once we get over that initial hump and shock of how dramatic the environment had changed and we started working in this way we we have settled into uh, you know an environment and a culture of change that that frankly is more rewarding and enjoyable for those that mm. are part of it um you know it's less bureaucratic it's less time consuming it creates more autonomy you know they, i think the level of collaboration that's required uh, throughout the process is, is enhanced. You know, the excitement of being part of something that's delivering more quickly uh, is, is heightened. So I, th- I think if you were to, to ask my team that are involved in delivering these changes, which inevitably is the whole team, I think they'd say it's a more engaging, uh, engaging way of working. Um, yeah. So we've learned. We've, we've certainly, uh, that will be one of the biggest legacies of this crisis. No, that's great to hear because, you know, over the years, a lot of the, the work that we've done has been in this space of, let's call it design thinking or agile ways of working. And mm-hmm. as you say, you know, when people are more empowered, when the work is more collaborative, then the enjoyment of work also goes up. And even mm-hmm. coming back to the more rapid cycles and you know, implementing things. You know, I think in the, the agile uh, world of work, one of the sayings is stop starting and start finishing, right? So actually yeah. get, you know, get the full cycle of, of work done. You see the results and that often gives you um, a great satisfaction. So I'm really glad to hear that um, those effects and in, in, in the team that is improving the enjoyment. This has been a great conversation, Steve. I'm just finishing up now and, and I want to come back to your own leadership style. You know, you've had to pivot yourself to an extent. And, and we've talked about how some of the things that, that you have implemented as an organization in terms of maybe features for the user experience and even ways of working, which we've talked about, will mm. stick around after the crisis. You know, I'm sure you're looking forward to seeing more people face-to-face again, having team meetings, um, making a speech to a packed room, all these different kind of things. But... What are you going to take away from this pivot in your own style? What are you going to really keep close for the longer term that you've learned uh, over the last few months? 
You know, the, the irony is, the, the, the first thing that comes to mind, Stephen, is what I will take from this is the sheer importance of face-to-face communications. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you asked me right up front about kind of leadership style through crisis. And I said about the importance of being authentic. And I think that can only be delivered face to face. Now, it's a compromise doing it across a video. Um, it's great that we've had that kind of vehicle to com- continue to communicate. I can imagine uh, managing or leading through this crisis without uh, the video capability. Um, but that will be enhanced when we can actually go and meet people face to face, be in the same uh, environment. Because, you know, I think we have a kind of an inbuilt desire to meet, to be together, to congregate. So the kind of theme of what we've talked about today is how important that is in delivering effective leadership, but also how critical that is in delivering effective change. So the legacy for me is the importance of face-to-face communication and being together and the authenticity that brings. Great. Great to hear. So, Steve, thanks for your time today. Just one final quick question uh, that I've asked Matt and Melissa. Um, One word to describe 2020 so far? (laughs) One word to describe 2020 so far? Um, Pivotal. Great. There we go. Fantastic. Thanks again, Steve. Wishing you the best. Stay safe. I'll see you soon. Cheers, Stephen. All the best. 